Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to the A to Z of David Bowie. I'm Mark Riley, and that colorful character is Rob Hughes. As you'll be aware, the A to Z of David Bowie is free to download. <laughs> Lunacy. But if you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club, you can. And here's how. There's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things. And for just $5 a month, wow, you can be part of it. Right. So now you're thinking $5 isn't much, but what exactly will I get for my hard-earned cash? Well, in short, you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door. Well, computer, actually, Mark. Via a system called Patreon. That's right, Mark. Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material. Material such as... Interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends. There'll be regular film Bowie quizzes. Bowie guitar tutorials. Unreleased archive written material. Competitions. And perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Nock and Jason Reed. Visiting various Bowie places of interest. And much more besides. All this for just $5 a month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website, bowie at cheapthings.com. Book early. S is for Stage, which was recorded on the Isolar 2 Tour, wasn't it, Bob? Indeed, the Isolar 2 Tour, also known as the Low Heroes Tour or the Stage Tour, was a worldwide tour by Bowie that opened on the 29th of March 1978 at the San Diego Sports Arena and continued right through North America, Europe and Australia before ending at the Nippon Budokan in Japan on the 12th of December 78. Not long after filming Just a Gigolo in March 1978, Bowie flew to Dallas where he started rehearsals for the biggest concert tour of his career thus far. Now, originally, Brian Eno planned to be part of the tour band, but he had to drop out due to health reasons. The band only had two weeks to rehearse for the tour. Carlos Alomar was the tour's band leader and drove the rehearsals, as he would do often. <laughs> I was say he drove the van. <laughs> he probably did. They were really struggling for two weeks. Uh, Bowie told one interviewer before the tour, I'm going out as myself this time. No more costumes, no more masks. This time it's a real thing Bowie Bowie fair enough the set list for the performances was made up of tunes from the previous year's albums Low and Heroes with the second half of each performance opening with a five song sequence from the rise and fall of Ziggy Stardust Bowie had the band learn the entirety of the Ziggy album in rehearsals although most of the songs were never performed live on tour the mellow instrumental art decade typically followed the Ziggy Stardust tracks songs from the 1976 album Station to Station were the closing numbers in the late 80s Bowie regarded some of the songs he performed live on the tour as a bit ponderous 
Atlas, referring specifically to some of the long instrumental performances such as Wazawa. Mm, despite having said there would be no more costumes, no more masks, Bowie did wear a number of flamboyant outfits. Designer Natasha Kornilov was brought in, having worked with Bowie, of course, before at the Rainbow in 72 and also on the 1980 Floor Show, and resulting in a look that involves snakeskin drape coats, sailor's caps, and as one reviewer put it, huge baggy white pants. Yeah, I was going to say he was barely, you know, he wasn't romping around in cords and a, a V-neck well, no. <laughs> that would have been good, wouldn't it? <laughs> The stark fluorescent tube lighting approach of the previous 1976 tour was further developed and expanded to create a large cage of tube lighting. This enclosed the stage with the ability to pulsate during the slower instrumental pieces and flash frantically during the faster ones. Oh, sorry, still thinking about his V-neck jumper and cord. Perhaps better slip on <laughs> as well. Mr. Trick there. Anyway, the Australian leg of the tour included Bowie's first shows in Australia and his first large-scale outdoor gigs for the first two dates. Keyboardist Dennis Garcia substituted for Roger Powell had a previous commitment with Utopia. The performances at Civic Centre in Providence, Rhode Island, Boston Garden and Philadelphia Spectrum were recorded for the live album stage. Uh, tour pianist Sean Mays recalled that for the show that night, they slowed the tempo down of most of the songs for the recording. The only night such a change was made. That's an odd one. Well, it is, uh, but it does. Uh, some of the stuff sounds really fast on it. I mean, I've not listened to it for a long time because oh, no. I'm, not, I'm not very keen on, no. that, on the album, which we'll get to. Mm. Uh, but like, Hang On To Yourselves just sounds like... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a bit bonkers, really. Yeah. Uh, the Dallas Convention Center performance in April 78 was filmed with six songs, What in the World, Blackout, Sense of Doubt, Speed of Life, Hang On To Yourself and Ziggy Stardust for broadcast on the US TV uh, show entitled David Bowie On Stage. The performances at Earl's Court in London were filmed by actor David Hemmings with extracts shown on the British TV programme The London Weekend Show. The film was yet to be released apparently because Bowie wasn't happy with it. Hemmings remarked later, David came down to Spain to see my cut of the film he decided at the end of the day that he didn't want to release it yeah who knows why and yeah. and and, and the, the actual truth of the matter is that now some things are being released that yes. Bowie wasn't, you know, particularly enamoured with. So yeah. you never know, maybe this will see the light of day now. Like the, He didn't like the 1984 show No, either. he didn't, did he? That's no. why it never came out. Yeah. And, I'm, and I, I don't think, actually, thinking about it now, I don't reckon that Bowie liked Cracked Actor either. Do you not think? Well, no. I suppose it did show him in a certain light. Well, he looked it's... terrible in it, and he was obviously very paranoid. And mm. for us watching it as fans, we were gripped and enthralled mm. by it. But for him, it must have been quite a weird watch. Yeah, quite Particularly painful. when he came out the other side of it and was healthy again. Mm. If you look at all of that stuff where he's in the limousine and his stomach's turning over and yeah. the, the police sirens and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, And it's funny as well, because I, I know that Bowie did say, we've covered this, that he was uh, particularly um, naffed off with himself for not filming and documenting a load of the stuff. Right, yeah. But the sure. ones that he did, he did that out. Like, <laughs> you can't have it both ways, can you? <laughs> well, he did. Although, <laughs> I anyway. anyway, in later years, he did kind of soften his stance, didn't he, on the uh, David Hemmings film. In 2001, for example, he said, I simply didn't like the way it had been shot. Now, of course, it looks pretty good, and I would suspect it would make it out sometime in the future. Mm. In addition, the performance at the NHK Hall in Tokyo in December 78 was filmed and broadcast on Japanese TV's The Young Music Show. What a great title for show. Drummer Dennis Davis can be seen wearing a gorilla mask for some reason for a couple of tunes. And and also I mean it is funny isn't it if you get an actor into, I mean I don't know what, the, what kind of experience David Hemmings had as a director but he's an actor, you would think you would get a director in. And he also yeah. got D.A. Pennebacher in you know to do the Ziggy thing which again oh. wasn't very well done was it? Not so, at all, I could have done that. You know and he's, he's mates with Nick Rogue by this time yeah. he probably couldn't afford him. Uh, the final night of the Earl's Court performance was recorded by the RCA Mobile Unit with 
the live performance premiered of the song Sound and Vision, later released on the 1995 compilation album Rarest One Bowie. The tour band remembered that every show was taped for Bowie's private use, and the tapes were carefully guarded by Carlos Alomar. From Nicholas Pegg's book now, uh, there were unruly crowds at Bowie's two Detroit gigs in April, leading to a break in the middle of the second show, when the stage was cleared of a mountain of flowers, frisbees, scarves, toilet rolls, and other projectiles. Earlier in the night, Bowie had changed the words of the Gene Genie to smiles like a toilet roll as yet another one sailed past his head (laughs) (laughs) bless him we know he's always up for a laugh Uh, in Boston one crowd member had smuggled in two inflatable beach balls uh, which they blew up during the show and bounced around the auditorium Bowie took delight in punching them back into the crowd and obviously storing away the idea for the serious movie. yeah well that's a great memory Milton Keynes yeah hoping it would come near me and it never it didn't Did you punch it? No. Right. The American leg of the Isolar 2 tour ended at Madison Square Garden, where guests included Andy Warhol, Dustin Hoffman, Robert Fripp, Brian Eno, Earl Slick and Talking Heads. Drummer Dennis Davis also invited along his 14-year-old neighbour, Sterling Campbell, who said afterwards, he said, I knew what I wanted to do with my life after that. And of course, we know that Campbell became Bowie's main drummer many years later. He did. So when the tour reached the UK in June 1978, Bowie went to see Iggy Pop at the Music Machine in Camden, where John Lydon was also in attendance. The three of them met afterwards for drinks. Uh, UK critics were full of praise for the tour, including three nights at Earl's Court Arena. The Financial Times noted a confident, happy Bowie, finished with excess and quite content to sing through his songbook to his very faithful fans. So, as for the set list, now gigs would open with a tape made up of tracks from Lou Reed, Iggy Pop and the Ruttles. How oh, great. Brilliant, I didn't know that. All right, so this is a typical set list for all uh, tour dates, except for a few. Originally, the whole album, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy, as we mentioned, was to be performed in the middle. So, uh, it'd start off with Warsaw. Heroes. What in the World, Be My Wife, The Gene Genie, Blackout, Sense of Doubt, Speed of Life, Breaking Glass, Beauty and the Beast, Fame, Five Years, Soul Love, Star, Hang On To Yourself, Ziggy Stardust, Suffragette City, Rock and Roll Suicide, Art Decade, Station to Station, Stay, TVC 15, and would usually uh, wheel out Rebel Rebel as in Encore. They did. Okay, so on to the tour band. Aside from Bowie's core team of Carlos Salomar, Dennis Davies, and George Murray, band members included ex Frank Zappa sideman Adrian Ballou on guitar, Simon House from Hawkwind on electric violin, Roger Powell, best known for his work with Todd Rundgren and the group Utopia, on keyboards, and Sean Mays on piano, string ensemble, and backup vocals. All would reunite the following year on Bowie's next album, Lodger. Brian Eno had recommended using Roger Powell while Simon House was an old mate, uh, well, actually a schoolmate of Bowie's who we hadn't seen for 15 years. Yeah, I didn't realise that either. Uh, pianist Sean Mays wrote a diary of the tour, We Can Be Heroes, Life on Tour with David Bowie. I can see yours on the shelf there, Mark. Yep. Uh, which was eventually uh, published in 1999. Yeah. He died four years earlier, actually, age 50 from AIDS. Mays had begun as a member of Fumble, who supported Bowie on the 1973 tour of the US. He made three albums with the band and featured in the original cast of Elvis at the Astoria Theatre. In the book, Mays recalls, When David sat down later, he took one leg up under him and I noticed that the sole of his shoe was as clean as the day he bought it. OK, maybe the shoes were new, but it struck me that he hardly ever sets foot in the street. It's all hotel, limousines, sterilised airports, the life I was about to lead. I shivered, feeling poised at the top of a roller coaster about to sweep across the world. So there you go. Um, we were talking about this in, uh, in the serious Moonlight thing, weren't we? we were, about, yeah. About, the, about these, the gear he would wear and never actually like, set 
fighting foot on uh, you know on, on in real in, in, in the normal real world. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> on the pavement. Uh, when I was chatting to Adrian Ballou about this tour in 2001, he he told me this. He said uh, it was a good atmosphere for a while, and then sometimes as things go, when they're handpicked people who don't really know each other, it degenerated somewhat. Overall, though, it was a lot of fun. I had a lot of freedom in the band. I didn't see David that often. He was still rather protected by a circle of handlers, I guess you'd call them. But when I toured with him in the 90s, this would be the Sound of Vision tour, uh, it wasn't that way at all. He was open and friendly to everybody in the band. We all went out to dinner and did all sorts of stuff together. Right. It's, it's strange, isn't it, to think him being kind of a little bit edgy and yeah, wary. Yeah, a little bit aloof, maybe, yeah. Mm. Okay, so Stage is David Bowie's second live album, recorded on the ISLR 2 tour and released by RCA in the September of 1978. First UK pressings were on translucent yellow vinyl and some European pressings also came out on blue vinyl. Yeah, have you got yellow and blue? I've got yellow. Yeah, I've got yellow too. The recording was put together from gigs in Philadelphia, Providence and Boston in the States in late April and early May 78. Tony Visconti mixed the album at Good Earth Studios in London, saying that unlike David Live, Stage was a truly live album. Nothing was fixed in the studio later on. Yeah, we've talked about this. I mean, I, I love David Live and I don't like Stage. So, I mean, I, I, yeah, each yeah, of their own, yeah, obviously. Uh, reviewers praised Stage for its sound quality, but it was criticised for lacking a live atmosphere, thanks to the recording being largely taken from direct instrument and microphone feeds, which minimise crowd noise. It's a funny one, this, isn't it? Because I like to hear a lot of crowd noise on a live album. Yeah. Because so, I mean, what, what you want to feel, ultimately, is you're there with them. That's well, what it's all about. One of the bands that I was in, a band called The Creepers, we recorded an album at the, in Amsterdam at the Milky Way. Mm. Okay, and it was from the soundboard. And, you know, make no bones about it. I mean, there was plenty of people in. I would yeah. imagine there was probably around about 700 people in, okay. you know. But um, but the, you don't hear any of them pretty much on the album because right. there was no microphone hanging over the audience. Right. And so it does sound really, really flat. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. and, I, and I'm, I, don't, I think I might have listened to it once since we released it. But, um, yeah, so yeah, you would think that would be an easier kind of fix to do. I mean, if you're talking about David Live, we know that some of the instruments didn't pick up yes. and they had to go back and re-record yeah. them. And some of the backing vocals, I believe. Uh, but it's funny, isn't it? Because at, at the beginning of um, Diamond Dogs, they've nicked the audience off the Faces oh, concert. That's right, yeah. For the uh, for the crowd scene yeah. in that in that particular uh, part of the song, so they could have done the same. Yeah, you would have thought so, just wouldn't you? Kind of got a Rod Stewart album and just dropped some atmosphere well, in. <laughs> well, would there be any? Well, anyway, it's not about oh, that. It's oh, stop it, stop oh. it. It's not. There are precedents. I wonder. There's a famous Humble Pie album called Performance Live at the Fillmore, which I think was partly mixed by Jerry Shirley, who was a drummer in the band, and uh, him, he and Steve Marriott was so um, sort of caught up in trying to capture all the best sound quality that they forgot to mix in the audience. It's is that just, right? Yeah, which is a, it's a weird one. So it, sometimes it happens deliberately, sometimes by accident. Well, then you've got it the other way around. Like the first one that I'm aware of is the uh, Seeds album, Raw and Alive, which he was neither raw nor alive. <laughs> it was in the, the studio. studio album, but, wasn't it? <laughs> yeah, and they dubbed a load of hysterical kids, maybe even from a Beatles uh, album or something crazy yeah, like that. Yeah. But all, and then later on, exactly the same thing happened with The Cramps for Smell of Female, which I believed up until just a couple of years ago was a live album from the Peppermint Lounge in New York. It's not. Oh, is it not? That's it was a news. studio album. <laughs> That's news to me. Yeah. Right, so okay. Go. So, uh, getting back to stage, as Bowie rarely tampered with the arrangements, in contrast to his method on David Live, stage added little to what was available on the original albums and hence was seen by some commentators as simply a marketing exercise that didn't do justice to a memorable tour. Right. Even the cover picture came in for criticism more so because the rest of the package contained only uh, variations of the same image. Yeah, and he was such a, such a stickler for, for getting things right, yeah, wasn't he? You know, um, yeah, it seems strange. Mm. Mind you, again, you know, we're not really talking about the phenomenon of, um, if you look at uh, Station to Station and Low, 
They're just both stills from, well, yeah. <laughs> from the film it done to me in the time. Almost like a bit lazy if you think about it. Though. Is that what you're trying to get at, Mark? I take it back. Yeah, he's bone idle and just did not care. Uh, stage with a commercial success. In the UK, it reached number five and was subsequently certified gold by the BPI. It reached number 44 on the US charts. Breaking Glass, which originally appeared in a shorter form on Low, was released as a three-track EP and reached number 54 in the UK singles charts. In the US, Star was released as a three-track EP, but failed to chart. I'm with you. Stage isn't one of my favourites at all. In fact, I can't remember the last time I played it. Nor me. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The A to Z of David Bowie with Mark Riley and Rob Hughes. S is for Solly, Bob Solly. Ah, Bob Solly, the keyboard player with the Manish Boys, whom David Bowie had been introduced to in July 1964 by his manager, Leslie Conn. Recalling one of their first gigs, which was an open-air show in a field near Maidstone, Solly remembered, there was hay stacked up all around the makeshift stage. It was a hot day, but nobody turned up to see us, so we decided to enjoy it as a paid practice session. I clearly remember David doing the kinks. You really got me. In November 1964, Bowie, Solly and Paul Rodriguez decided to try and write songs together. They came up with So Near to Loving You, of which Solly later said, we had trouble working out chord sequences. Although David could describe it, he couldn't actually play it. Oh, a bit like Captain Beefheart. Yeah, true. Solly played organ on Bowie's second ever release in early 1965, I Pity the Fool. Session musician Jimmy Page, who played guitar on it, said to Solly at the time, I don't think you're going to have a hit with this one. (laughs) Nice. Nice to G him up there just before they went in. In May 1965, Solly and Rodriguez had been invited to write songs for American producer Shel Talmy. When they arrived at his office on Dean Street in Soho, they were surprised to find Bowie there too. He'd also been asked to write songs for Talmy and use the opportunity to tell them that he didn't want to carry on with the Manish Boys anymore. Oh. You, you have to wonder if that was a bit of a setup, don't you? I think it was a bit of a ploy, definitely. Sound like uh, it. Just incidentally, of course, we've covered Manish Boys, haven't we, in M. So yeah. if you want to find the detailed history of the band. Uh, Solly and Rodriguez spent six months employed by Talmy as songwriters. 
Solly said, uh, Shell paid as a weekly retainer. I don't think any of our work was recorded, but it was a great time. That was probably the nicest six months of my life. What a great way to make a living for a bit. Defo. He went on to become an architect and also, as we know, an expert in collectible vinyl, writing for Record Collector magazine. In 2005, Record Collector published his book, 100 Greatest Rock and Roll Records. So there was um, a radio programme on Six Music, when pretty much when we just kind of started working together, called Mint. Yes. And it went out between 10 o'clock and midnight every Sunday night. And it was a great programme, wasn't it, Bob? I loved Mint. I was sorry to see it go. I really was. Me too. I was heartbroken, actually. And mm. for those who don't know, which is nearly everybody, because like, Six Music was in its infancy. <laughs> it was, yes. And, uh, and it was 10 o'clock on a Sunday night. Uh, but those who listened to it absolutely loved it. And one section of it was a charity shop challenge, wasn't it, Bob? I loved the charity shop challenge. It was great because we got each uh, given five pounds and we were uh, allowed to, well, go, go off to a charity shop and try and find the best record. You weren't allowed on my patch and I wasn't allowed on yours. That's right. And what we had to do then as part of the programme, we'd get somebody from Record Collector. Now, we started off with a wonderful guy called Jack Kane, mm. uh, who sadly passed away. Uh, a beautiful guy. We never actually got to meet Jack, did we? No, we didn't, sadly. Um, but he but he would come on and he would he would price up all of the stuff that we bought and one of us would win. Yes. And then Joel McIver took over when, uh, when Jack was sadly no longer with us. Mm. There was the eBay chart as well, whereby I would, I would be trolling. I mean, it would take me hours and hours just to find the most interesting things that were for sale on eBay. Ah. Sometimes they're really expensive, sometimes mm. they're really cheap. I do remember <laughs> there was, was it like, like something like Britney Spears' bra <laughs> was on there. But, Possibly, but I would have remembered that. I but think. there was also a drawing of Charlie Chaplin by Michael <laughs> Jackson that was on there forever and a day and was just like completely overpriced. And so we would do the do 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 and we'd yeah. do the chart rundown. We would look yeah. at a collectible vinyl and we would look at collectible, um, yeah, well, particular artists we would spotlight. Yes, yes, yeah. And it was and it was a really, really good programme. And we also would interview various people. And it was a great list. You'd have Kevin Ayers and Bo oh, Diddley, yeah. Tony Visconti, Mick yeah. Rock. Yeah, mm-hmm. Ian Hunter was on there, I think. Yeah, loads yeah. of Bowie associated, yeah. associated stuff, as you would expect. Uh, but on this particular occasion, I spoke to Bob Solly. So 2004, this programme we're looking at. And so uh, in it, yeah, Solly talks about how the Manish Boys came together, wanting to play R&B like the Stones. He talks about recording for Mickey Most, uh, though the results were never released, and doing some sessions for Joe Meek. Yeah, over on Holloway Road there. Uh, he's also uh, he's talking about Leslie Conn's suggestion of Bowie as a singer during the interview with you on Mint. He said, uh, we didn't need him at all, talking about Bowie. But in the end, we basically agreed to give him a trial. So it was all the insistence of Leslie Conn, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, we were rehearsing down in Kent and Davey came in, obviously known as Davy Jones at that point, with Les and was sold to us. He had the long hair and all the trimmings and trappings of a rock and roll star. He made the most of his natural things just to get attention. He also said that he was never keen on I Pity the Fool, but they were dictated to by Leslie Conn. So here's a quote. Jimmy Page sat next to me at the session. We rehearsed the numbers that morning at the Two Eyes Coffee Bar in Old Compton Street in Soho. Jimmy was excited when we saw him that morning because he'd just got a new gadget from the States called a Fuzzbox. It was the first one in Britain and he couldn't wait to use it. Great. This despite the fact that he knew he was playing it on something that was never going to be a hit. Yeah, he continued. He said uh, David had that X factor. He had that charisma that put him aside from other singers. I last spoke to David about a year ago one afternoon I got this telephone call picked it up and a voice said Bob want to join a band I said yeah who is this he went it's David and we had a really good natter great stuff okay Uh, and so this is also from Kent Online uh, published in June of 2017 music icon David Bowie has been immortalised in Maystone thanks to a blue plaque commemorating his history and association with the town Nick Topperheaden former drummer with The Clash and Bowie's ex-bandmate Bob Solly were on hand to unveil the plaque in the Royal Star Arcade and there are some good photos of this by the way if you have a look online Uh, dozens of music fans filled the floor to 
mark the special occasion at a place that Bowie played a number of times between 1964 and 65. He performed several times as part of Maidstone Band, the Manish Boys, at the Royal Star Arcade, formerly the Royal Star Hotel Ballroom in the High Street in the mid-60s. The commemoration was arranged by Radio Kent as part of 47 unveiled across the country to mark BBC Music Day, based on listeners' nominations. Nick Topperheaden, after unveiling the plaque, said, I was given a list about three months ago to choose a suitable recipient, whether it be a place or a person connected to Kent. Topper continued, there were various gigs such as the, the uh, Chislehurst Caves, the start of the Canterbury music scene. There was Noel Reddin from Fat Mattress and Jimi Hendrix Experience and he was born in Folkestone. But as soon as David Bowie was mentioned, he stood out a mile. Yeah, and Bob Solly added, it's fabulous seeing the plaque here. It has the Manish Boys recognised on the plaque itself and with the name quite rightly. Uh, to see a specific band name on there is quite something. It makes 55 years of waiting quite something. Um, and so, um, and there's also one of these same plaques in uh, the train station in Hull, isn't it? Yeah, there is, isn't For there? the spiders, yeah, and I know because right. I've been there and had my photo taken with it, which is slightly predictable, uh, but that's me. Um, okay, so staying around about the same time here then, um, roughly speaking, yes. uh, we've also got S is for the Society of Protection for Long-Haired Men, isn't it? It is indeed. Uh, much discussed on this programme. In November 1964, BBC's Tonight Show interviewed the 17-year-old David Bowie, then known as Davy Jones, for a light-hearted TV feature. David was introduced as a spokesperson for the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Long-Haired Men. Now, the interview by Cliff Mitchell-Moore saw Bowie protesting about the treatment that he and other long haired men received on the streets of London and he was in the company of fellow long hairs George Underwood and the Manish boys John Watson, Wolfburn and Paul Rodriguez Mitchell Moore introduced the item by saying it's all got to stop they've had enough, the worms are turning, the rebellion of the long hairs is getting underway, they're tired of losing their jobs, they're tired of being sent home from college, they're tired of being sent home from school, they're tired even of being refused the dole Can you refuse the dole to be long hair or, I, or, or sack them? I can't imagine so Bob <laughs> Bowie had been seeking publicity for the International League for the Preservation of Animal Filament, which he then renamed the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Long-Haired Men. I think we're all fairly tolerant, says Bowie in the show, but for the last two years we've had comments like, darling, and can I carry a handbag thrown at us? And I think it just has to stop now. He's very, very sincere. He is, very much. And angry. Uh, Mitchell Moore asks if such behaviour surprises him because, after all, you've got really rather long hair, haven't you? We have, yes, replies Bowie. I think we all like long hair and we don't see why other people should persecute us because of this. When Mitchell Moore asks whether they got the idea from the Rolling Stones, Bowie says, no, that's stupid. <laughs> Which is pretty brave, isn't it? it Calling really. like this heavyweight, Mitchell Moore, <laughs> stupid. Absolutely. Bowie added later that it's time we were united and stood up for our curls. He then invited various other musicians to join in the society, including Screaming Lord Such. Uh, Such recalled later in 1993, I was part of the Long-Haired Society. I was one of the few who really did have long hair. Okay, and this is from Mashable, which is a website. Mm. Uh, The publicity generated by the interview led to an interview in London Evening News, who explained that it's really for the protection of pop musicians and those who wear their hair long, explained the founder and president, David Jones, of Playstow Grove, Bromley. Carried on. Anyone who has the courage to wear their hair down to his shoulders has to go through hell. It's time we were united and stood up for our curls, as I just said. David's in the process of enrolling members. Everybody makes jokes about you on a bus, and if you go past navvies digging in the road, it's 
murder, says David. <laughs> Bowie was flanked by the other equally hirsute members of the band, the Manish Boys. Uh, we can march in protest, says one Manish Boy. Sort of like ban the bomb all over again, you know? And uh, Bowie deadpanned, bowled the mast on in response. Uh, behind the society was Bowie's then manager, Leslie Conn. Now, when the Manish Boys were due to appear on another BBC show, Gadzooks, It's All Happening, to perform their single, I Pity the Fool, the show's producer, Barry Langford, asked for the band to cut their hair beforehand, handed this uh, golden publicity opportunity on a plate. Conn organised a protest of fans with pro-long-hair placards outside the BBC and created the society. In the event, Bowie and his band were allowed to retain their long hair on the condition that if an audience member complained, the band's fee would go to charity. No complaints were received. <laughs> yeah, oh. we know. It was a right old ruse, wasn't it? Yeah, I know. In March 1965, Bowie was still trying to drum up publicity for I Pity the Fool by continuing the long hair debate. He was interviewed by the Daily Mirror at home in Bromley, telling them how he and the Manish boys were having problems with the booking of the Gadzooks TV programme. In truth, the scam had been done in collusion with the show's producer, Barry Langford. No. Bowie told the reporter, I've said I've got no intention of having my hair cut. Mr Langford has left the matter open till Friday in case a change my mind but i won't i wouldn't have my hair cut for the prime minister let alone the bbc my girlfriend isn't keen on my hair either maybe it's because i get asked for more dates when we're out together oh and um and it is funny because he went through all this and then it wasn't too long after that he had it all cut off i know he he had it all cut off didn't he because he wanted to be like a mod that's it the a to z of david bowie with mark riley and rob hughes S is for The Sims Brothers. The Sims Brothers Band, an American rock-jazz-R&B group formed in early 1974 in southwestern Connecticut. The group began as a trio. Frank and George Sims and Dave Spinner composed their harmonies set to an acoustic guitar and played local coffee houses. They regularly appeared at popular 70s Manhattan nightclubs like Tramps, Reno Sweeney's, Catch a Rising Star and The Bitter End. The trio became a true rock band with the addition of Mickey Leonard on lead guitar, Ted McKenzie on drums, Doug Shimmy Mackey on bass and Rob Sabino on keyboards late in 1975. Ted moved on a few months later and Bud Tunick replaced him after serving as the band's manager up to that time. I was hoping you were going to pronounce it Tunick there, Mark, but you didn't. You let me down. <laughs> you might be right. They became regulars throughout Connecticut at clubs like the Players Tavern of Westport and Toad's Place in New Haven. In 1979, the listeners of WPLR, the, work, the area's largest and most popular rock radio station voted the Sims Brothers Band Connecticut's number one act. The original manager of the rock group, Boston, Paul Ahern, met the band at Westport Players Tavern one evening and eventually got a two-album deal for them with Joe Smith of Electra Records. The band then flew to Miami Beach to record the first album, The Sims Brothers Band. In 1979, they undertook an East Coast tour opening for Peter Frampton. That's not bad, is it? After the band realised that Electra planned virtually no local or national support, they recorded their second album in North White Plains in New York. As a result of Electra's inaction, band members personally handled much of their own business and chose Eddie Kramer, engineer of the Beatles, Stones, Jimi Hendrix, as producer of their second album, Attitude. Electra still didn't offer any label support or tour budget, so the band ground out their final months in nightclubs playing covers tunes to repay a bank loan they'd taken out to finance their road expenses. That's grim, isn't it? Why did they sign them? They've obviously See, I mean, quite often with bands, you will get uh, they'll get signed up, and then the record company might lose interest after the first album if yes. it doesn't sell. It sounds like they signed them up and lost interest immediately. Bizarre, but let them do two albums. Yeah, strange. Uh, when Spinner started touring with another band in the early 80s, the Sims Brothers found themselves in limbo. So, this is where David Bowie comes in. Okay, this is from uh, an article in Inverse magazine that came out in April 2016. 
Um, while we were still recording in the studio with David, as we were leaving the last day, he said, oh, Frank, can I have your phone number? Sims says, uh, and I'm dying. I can't believe David Bowie's asking for my phone number. Sims was doing backup vocals, the article explains, on Bowie's Let's Dance that day, and soon after, Bowie made use of that phone number. Within two weeks, his manager called and said, David Bowie wants you to be on tour with him. Okay, so the question was, uh, how did you first become connected with David Bowie? And so this is Frank. After college, I started a band and we drove to New York to play in clubs. There were three of us, me, my brother George, and this other guy, David Spinner. We would play everywhere, Catch a Rising Star, Reno, Sweeney's, Tramps. Then we got a bigger band and started playing locally in Stamford, Connecticut. Somebody heard us and said, you guys are great. So we talked to a guy at Electra Records. He continues, one of the guys in the band introduced us to Nile Rogers. Whenever he was producing something, he'd say, come on in and sing for this guy's record. That was how we met David. We sang with David on Let's Dance and it, of course, became a huge hit. He's then asked, uh, what was being on tour with David Bowie like? He said, every day was something different. In Australia, he would say, I've rented a yacht, so we're going to go into Sydney Harbour and we'll set the anchor. Go swimming if you want. Uh, with most of the places we went, there were such incredible extras provided along with the event. In New Zealand, the Maoris heard we were coming, so they had a gigantic ceremony and a feast to welcome David and our band. The night before we went to the ceremony, David asked me, could you come up to my room? I've heard they're going to sing us a song, so I want to write something to sing back at them. Oh, great. Brilliant. Uh, I continue. Or sometimes we get onto the plane and they'd say... David has invited five sushi chefs, so we ate an entire sushi buffet the minute we walked onto the plane. We always stayed in five-star hotels and private planes, and we saw tons and tons of stars. Everybody from Iggy Pop to Paul Simon to Susan Sarandon appeared. And then uh, he's asked, uh, what surprised you the most about Bowie? And you can almost see this coming, because this is what most people say about David yeah. Bowie, once they got to know him well. Or, I mean, like I say, I mean, you know, I've said it before, I met David on uh, many occasions, but he's, he was just always up for a laugh. And the, yeah. This is what always comes through, isn't it? He said he had a great sense of humour. He was very accessible. Even the first couple of days recording for him, he wrote a song called Cat People. We called it Cat Urine or Cat Feces. And he would laugh. Usually, if you did that in front of other rock stars, they'd say, get out of here, you're making fun of my song. He appreciated the fact that we didn't worship him. I like this bit. He says, uh, he carries on. He says, we were in West Berlin and we're driving down the street in a taxi and there's David alone, his cap on, walking down the street. He didn't care. He had this feeling like, nobody's going to mess with me and if they do, I'll talk to them. He didn't want to observe life while riding in a limousine. So you get the idea, Bowie's fighting it all the time. Brilliant. One crew member said to me one day, you know what David Bowie did? He rolled my pant leg up because my pant legs were dragging. He got down on the ground and rolled them up. Who would do that? (laughs) Nobody would do that. And then uh, the question was, since you've been on tour with so many artists, what set Bowie apart, aside from his personality? He says, uh, that concert was highly choreographed. It was the first time computers controlled the lights and made them change colours with different formats and the costumes. David Bowie worked with a guy called Peter Hall from the Metropolitan Opera and told him, I want the sax player to look like that, the drummer like that, George and Frank like this. Uh, He continued, everybody had his own incredible, unique costume from all over the world. My brother looked like an English nobleman, I looked like a pimp, and someone else would have a complete navvy jacket. David's idea was that he wanted to envisage a dock in Singapore in the 19th. 50s. Brilliant. Uh, when we opened in Belgium, they put flowers in the dressing room and David stuck a note in them. It said, boys, please don't stain the costumes. Love, DB. Oh. I saved it. So uh, I've just been, obviously, you know, um, uh, a massive gardener yes. in my own right. Uh, I would say that these were probably lilies. 
Oh, Mark, do you think so? I do, yeah. Right, You've got okay. them little pods on them, haven't they? That stain yeah, they have, yeah, yeah, that's right, because they do stain when they fall off. I they didn't do. know you are a massive gardener. Of course I am, mate. Uh, did you see Bowie in his final months or days? He says, I saw him at a birthday party about a year ago when he probably did have cancer. He looked magnificent, unbelievable. His eyes, his skin, his hair were just perfect. I couldn't believe it. I said, David, you look marvellous. He said, well, after all, the way you look is so important, isn't it? That's what really matters. And of course he was joking, but you watch him walk through the room and people shudder in a good way, like he's just sending out vibrations. Not many people can do that. Lovely memory. The brothers were also interviewed by uh, La Vida Liverpool uh, magazine, online magazine, in July 2018. And they asked, what was it like performing with David Bowie? So this is George. There's not enough time to give a full accounting of how amazing and comparable he was. The world in general knew that David Bowie was the epitome of high class, dignity and charm. But you had to know the man in person to realise how unique he was amongst men. My strongest memories of David and of the time we spent together have absolutely nothing to do with music. And Frank continued, he called Bowie a gentleman in every aspect. What George said, he says, George and I often collaborated with David in his hotel suite with tea and music. We'd laugh at the ornate decor, share our experiences of the day, discuss our favourite films, literature, art and work on show material. Uh, Aside from his work with Bowie, Frank Sims sang background vocals on Billy Joel's River of Dreams album and Madonna's Material Girl. He has also recorded with In Excess, Chaka Khan, Al Green, Elvis Costello, Brian Wilson, Carly Simon, Jeff Beck, Laurie Anderson, Sheik, William S. Burroughs, throw that one in there, Mm. Dan Warwick, and also Roberta Flack. He also sung on the films Working Girl, Anastasia, Moonlight Kingdom, and Mickey Blue Eyes. That's quite a CV, isn't it? Yeah. In the mid-80s, fellow Connecticut musician and leader of the Saturday Night Live band G.E. Smith invited Frank onto the show, and since then, Frank's performed with hundreds of guests as the background singer, onstage performer, and voiceover artist for recordings, skits, and parody commercials. In 2012, he performed with Roger Waters and Eddie Vedder, and Roger's band in the 12-12-12, the concert for Sandy Relief, also featuring Bruce Springsteen, The Stones, Paul McCartney, Eric Clapton, The Who and more. The concert was broadcast worldwide, listened to by over one billion people. After much album CD work, he began a career in voiceovers and character acting for commercials, films and TV, including spots for parody commercials for Saturday Night Live and... Dun, 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 Bob. SpongeBob SquarePants, Bob! Yay! Uh, uh, promos for it for Nickelodeon. For several years, Frank was the voice of the Kool-Aid Man. Now, we know Frank was great then. Uh, as was George but have you watched Spongebob yet? Not yet I, I will Bob I promise you I will and everybody that I mentioned Spongebob to they, they do all say we, it's brilliant you got to watch it so I, I we, will We can't go on if you don't watch it Right I'm not going to watch it then So that's it for this episode of the A to Z of David Bowie but once again before you go if you'd like to support us along the way and be a member of an exclusive Bowie club you can and here's how there's an exclusive Bowie members club called Cheap Things and for just $5 a month wow you can be part of it right so now you're thinking $5 isn't much but what exactly will I get for my hard earned cash well in short you'll get lots of great new exclusive material delivered to your door well computer actually Mark via a system called Patreon that's right Mark Patreon is a payment system that allows you to contribute your monthly subscription and offers you a portal to access the exclusive material material such as Interviews with Bowie's cohorts and friends. There'll be regular filmed Bowie quizzes. Bowie guitar tutorials. Unreleased archive written material. Competitions. And perhaps most impressively, short films featuring the Cheap Things team. Ah, that'll be me, Mark, Howard Knock and Jason Reed. Visiting various Bowie places of interest. And much more besides. All this for just $5 a 
month. So if you can't resist, simply go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash cheap things, or one word, and join up. There's also a website, bowiecheapthings.com. Book early. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.